This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Dr. Lance McMahon, chair of the Department of Pharmacodynamics at University of Florida College of Pharmacy. Dr. McMahon is involved in pioneering kratom research that looks at the various kratom alkaloids, how they function on our brain receptors, and how that creates kratom's complex effects. We'll talk about this research, where it's been, and where it's headed. So my understanding is that you have had um, a couple of our my colleagues uh, from the University of Florida participate in this podcast. Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Sharma... And um, Dr. Grunman was on. Yeah. Have you had Dr. McCurdy yet? No, no. Uh, he he actually re- referred me to you. I tried to. I was trying to get him because he tweeted out Dr. Sharma's episode on LinkedIn. What, but... a, what a nice guy! What a nice guy! I'm not so so. He's he's being uh, gracious and generous. Yeah, um, definitely. Now you're the uh, professor and chair of the Department of Pharma. To- Pharmacodynamics. Um, Pharmacodynamics. It's a it's a mouthful. Yeah. It's uh, really a pharmacology physiology department, which you would traditionally find in a medical school. Uh, we have those departments in our medical school at the University of Florida, and therefore our name has to be different, which is why we have that odd name. Yeah, I, I was going to ask for like a layperson's definition for pharmacodynamics. It is the study of how drugs impact biological systems very simply. Yeah. So pharmacology is a scientific discipline that is then subdivided into the two subdisciplines of pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Pharmacokinetics we generally understand as how biological systems transform drugs, mm-hmm. metabolize drugs, excrete drugs. Once drugs go into a biological system, human beings, for example, those drugs are metabolized, excreted, they're, they're transformed. It, pharmacodynamics is the other sub-discipline, and that's the opposite relationship, and that is how drugs impact biological systems, how they change biological systems. And when you're thinking about a drug like Kratom, you're, you're thinking about how Kratom changes an individual's mood, their physiology, and, and all, the, all of those therapeutic effects that we think about when we're talking about Kratom. Had you researched Kratom um, before? Because I, I understand Dr. Um, McCurdy and Dr. Avery uh, brought uh, their research about Kratom from uh, University of Mississippi, uh, where they were, uh, to Florida. But, but had there been anything going on prior to them? For me, no. Okay. I'll tell you... When, when Chris McCurdy was at, and Bonnie Avery were at the University of Mississippi or Ole Miss, uh, they were collaborating and part of a team that included Steve Cutler. And of course, Ole Miss and Steve Cutler at the time was a chair of their pharmaceutical sciences department. This was the School of Pharmacy at Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. They have a long history and tradition of natural products pharmacy and mm-hmm. drug uh, development from natural products. That's where the cannabis farm that the government managed and, and funded yeah. for, for decades existed, and they have very strong reputation in cannabinoid pharmacology. But it was that time uh, when Chris and Bonnie, and this at this point it must have been 15 years ago, I, I think, and, and Chris could, could be more definitive on the date, but certainly in the mid-90s, he was already looking into um, this this plant. Mm-hmm. Well, not the mid-90s, I'm sorry, probably the mid-2000s. That's, yeah. that's yeah. not accurate, because it's been about 15 years. So the mid-2000s, correction, uh, and, you know, he, 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 as academic researchers, we spend our time writing grants Mm-hmm. to the National Institutes of Health and other funding organizations. But mm-hmm. the NIH is the big the big dog. Yeah. The biggest uh, government or, or agency that funds biomedical research. And mm-hmm. he, at the time, was trying to develop Kratom as a medicine. And in particular, medicinal chemists are always interested in 
creating intellectual property. And you can't easily create intellectual property from a plant mm-hmm. <laughs> that belongs to Mother Nature. So they they try to modify those chemicals. Long story short, he submitted a grant to suggest that synthetic derivatives of the natural product could be good medicines. And I'll say up front that I think that continues to be an innovative and untapped direction to go. Yeah. But the the funding agency and the reviewers were not interested. So (laughs) he continued to work on Kratom with some clinical investigators, in particular one at Harvard University. His name is Ed Boyer. But then because of lack of funding, the interest or at least his ability to study Kratom, Chris McCurdy's ability to study Kratom sort of waned. And then he joined the University of Florida in 2017, at the beginning of the year. I joined later that year into 2017, and the two of us got together, and and really it was a a win-win relationship between the two of us. He had the chemistry background I had and pharmacology. I had the whole animal preclinical pharmacology, and we designed a, a grant that targeted Kratom and its alkaloids for therapeutic development, in particular, the treatment of various opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that success was based upon the government and its increased funding to address the opioid crisis and the opioid epidemic. That was something that, you know, we probably, now that we have COVID, we hardly remember uh, that, although it, it's still uh, a very big problem in the country. And, and in fact, I would argue COVID is probably making it even worse. Uh, but because of the because of the additional funding from the government on opioid crisis related research and its interest in Kratom, we were able to get those that work funded at a very large with a very large grant, a couple of grants actually. Yeah, those were the NIDA grants, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that, we were happy to see that happen. Is Kratom unique in that it hits so many of the brain receptors, or are there other plants that kind of work like this with so many alkaloids hitting so many different brain receptors? You know, there, there are a variety of plants that probably hit numerous brain receptors. Uh, I referred to cannabis earlier. Yeah. Cannabis is, is probably a bit more selective for the canonical sort of what we call the the THC cannabinoid CB1 receptor. So that, that as a as a comparator, while cannabis has like 200 active chemicals, including cannabinoids, mm-hmm. the 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 ones that we're most interested in act fairly selectively at the CB1 receptor, at least with respect to central nervous system activity. And that's of course what we become interested in when we're changing our mood. Right, where drugs have to get into the brain to do that, um, for the most part. I mean, I, I guess there's some exceptions, but that's a tangent. Um, kratom has at least 40 alkaloids. We we know that mitragynin is usually the most abundant. Not always, though. We're finding that depending upon where it grows, the profile of alkaloids that are generated in the plant can vary, but. Mitragynin, as the most abundant kratom alkaloid, has a uh, has multiple sites at which it acts in the brain, including opioid receptors, but other receptors. And then there are the other kratom alkaloids present in the plant to a significant degree that also act at additional brain receptors. So it's a heterogeneous in, in the sense that not only is its primary alkaloid mitragynin hitting numerous different kinds of receptors, but the other alkaloids that are present are hitting even still further <laughs> other receptors. So it's a it's a fascinating plant in that regard. Yeah, and there was a study that we looked at. Um, part of It's kind of a side podcast I have for this, and I do it with uh, Dr. John Cachet. He's a neuroscientist that works 
uh, he's done a lot of cannabis research and and uh, he's in Ohio but uh, we looked at the uh, pharmacokinetics of 11 kratom alkaloids on on that podcast and um, that was interesting because uh, you use like commercial products uh, lyophilized kratom tea was kind of the uh, traditional kratom tea if, and then there was a liquid extract and you looked at 11 alkaloids uh, uh, in in uh, blood plasma and rats and what did you learn about how the alkaloids work together in in the consumer products versus maybe how they work in isolation because a lot of the studies have been just mitragynine and what I when I was talking to Dr. Sharma he was he emphasized that you know it's the one the main alkaloid doesn't do the same thing as kratom does as a as a plant or as it consumed in these commercial products. So what did you learn um, in that study that that stood out about how like the alkaloids work together? You make a number of important points in your question, and, and let me answer the question before I then comment on a few of the, the components of the question, which was a very good one. Um, well, yeah, uh, the bottom line is Kratom is a complex mixture of different drug-like chemicals, and anytime we focus on a single chemical, we are simplifying the material in, in, a, in an important way. So when we're as scientists, we have to break complex issues down into individual parts in order to, mm-hmm. it's important to understand the individual parts before you can then begin to understand what happens when you put those individual parts together. That's true for drugs. That's true for you know, any kind of scientific uh, exercise. But we, we can't forget when we're doing that, that the individual parts do not represent or reflect the complexity of the whole material. Yeah. We have a long way to go, a very long way to go, because mm-hmm. we have made tremendous strides in the last two to three years understanding the pharmacology of the individual alkaloids. And that includes both pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. So remember what those definitions are. You talked about the pharmacokinetic paper. Uh, So is the absorption, when we're talking about PK, right? You eat a substance, it has to be absorbed through the gastric lining, it goes through intestinal absorption, it increases, uh, it enters the bloodstream, there's first pass metabolism through the liver, when we're talking about CNS substances, eventually it has to get through the blood-brain barrier, which is a pretty significant barrier, which is a good thing. We don't want any old thing that we consume to be able to get into our brain, especially toxins. So that blood-brain barrier is important. So you have to remember all of those things when, when you know, you're drinking a tea or, or consuming a, a, a liquid extract. Ultimately, the material has to get to the brain. And what we learned is that the absorption, the distribution of the material through different tissues metabolism and the excretion, so-called ADME, it's an acronym that we use for absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. The ADME properties can change considerably when you have multiple of the, of the alkaloids together in the mixture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, can, you can establish the pharmacokinetics of an individual alkaloid, and that profile changes when you put alkaloids together. So for example, uh, the absorption and the distribution might be enhanced uh, of one alkaloid might be enhanced by the presence of another. Mm -hmm. And so that's at the PK, the pharmacokinetic level, where we have a lot of work to do. And and we're funded to do this work is to look at what happens to the biological systems when we combine the different alkaloids. So we, we understand what the individual alkaloids are doing in terms of changing the biological system, changing our mood, changing our behavior binding to opioid receptors, binding to other receptors, and then it it increases in complexity when we add alkaloids, you know, a second alkaloid or a third alkaloid or a fourth. Um, And we've learned some, and we have some pretty good predictions about what will happen when the alkaloids are combined, but ultimately you have to do the experiments to confirm or disconfirm what your predictions are. And so, um, you know, there are there are alkaloids present that may enhance, as I said, for pharmacokinetics. Let's say we're talking about a mood enhancing alkaloid. Well, there may be another alkaloid in there that that 
further enhances mood uh, or enhances the effect of that of the first alkaloid. Um, we know from natural products that sometimes there are chemicals in a product that cancel each other out. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, without going into detail, you know, there are agonists. Those are drugs that can activate receptors. And then there are antagonists. Those are drugs that bind to the same receptor, but they do not activate the receptor. They serve to block the effects of other drugs that activate the receptor. This is true for canna- cannabis, uh, and it may also be true for kratom. There may be agonists and antagonists in the same plant so that depending upon the relative balance of those two things, they may cancel each other out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty fascinating uh, pharmacological puzzle that we're, we're studying. There was a study, the investigation of adrenergic and opioid binding affinities. The one alkaloid, corynanthidine, a minor, I'm reading from the study, a minor kratom alkaloid acts as a functional antagonist at the uh, mu opioid receptor and can reverse morphine-induced inhibition uh, of twitch contraction and guinea pig. So, what so that's, a fancy, that's yeah. a fancy description, you, Brian, you nailed it, of, of the point <laughs> I just made that that corynanthidine can potentially cancel out the effects of mitragynin mm-hmm. or its more active uh, mu at, uh, metabolite 7-hydroxymitragynin. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, so that, that, you know, that would be an example of how they work together versus alone. You see a lot of things where the 7-hydroxymitragynine, I think you found that is, is in some ways more potent than morphine on how it acts alone. I, I, I mean, I remember like a sheriff in Mississippi that wanted to outlaw Kratom, pointed to that and said, this stuff is worse than morphine. Uh, and then on the other hand, somebody might uh, find an alkaloid that's proven to be like a cancer fighting agent and then write a blog post that says Kratom cures cancer, which is seriously irresponsible. But uh, that's just another example of sure, why, sure. Why alkaloids alone versus in, in concert with each other. You know, uh, Brian, 7-hydroxymitragynin is an interesting alkaloid because, mm-hmm. in fact, it may not be present in the plant naturally. And I, I'm not sure if that's some an issue that you have discussed totally. On the yeah, I want to get into it. Yeah, definitely. Okay. okay. Well, I could save that, or we could get we could get into it now. Uh, just in reference to the the comment about its its abuse liability, because yeah. you're right. It it is a if you'll allow me to use a the, the you know a loose term, it's a cleaner opioid like substance. It it does have more pharmacology that resembles a drug like morphine or oxycodone or or even heroin or fentanyl. Mm-hmm. But there but you say that and, and then of course the reaction is, oh my goodness, you have this natural product and you use that product and, and heroin in the same sentence, um, that sets off alarm bells. Well it, the the this particular metabolite uh, may not be present in the plant and and in fact our group, in particular, Dr. McCurdy, has collaborations with uh, plant biologists at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and they've yet to find the enzymatic machinery, if you will, that would be necessary to create 7 hydroxymitragynin in the plant. So we believe it's, uh, it's formed outside the plant through a variety of means. It could be, you know... It's it's a labile metabolite, meaning if you heat it, if you heat, you know, if, the, if you expose the plant material to heat, it may generate some 7-hydroxymitragynin. We also know it's a it's an active metabolite that's formed in animals, humans, mm-hmm. monkeys, dogs, rodents. All of the animals that we have tested and conducted pharmacokinetic studies shows that you get conversion of mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin. Now. The important caveat is that the amount of 7-hydroxymitragynin that is formed does not seem to be of concern. In other words, you don't get such a large amount of 7-hydroxymitragynin that's formed through this metabolism where it would become pharmacologically or biologically or behaviorally relevant. That's that's sort of the, the position that we have right now the interpretation that we would apply to all of the the data and the experiments we've conducted 
Now, I was I was under the impression that it's not in the natural leaf, but when it becomes dried, then that does something that adds seven hydroxy mitragynine in, in some of the the dried product that most people in the United States uh, consume. Is, is that not true? Is it even in there, or is it always? It, it, a- yeah, I think you're. No, that's exactly right. We're, we have not done the work yet to determine what are the factors that lead to its formation mm. uh, in dried material. We, we think it has something to do with heat. It could be the dehydration process. I, and my background is not in chemistry, so so I would not give you an informed response on that. Somehow, it, it gets there. And the amount that, that is present certainly will vary by product. And I think that's that's really one of the unknowns, at least as far as we're concerned. And from our research program, we've not yet been able to know with any certainty how the 7-hydroxymitragynin winds up getting there. And um, I'm looking at the uh, another study from 2020 about metabolism of... Uh... 7-hydroxy in human plasma. Now it says uh, 7-HMG was the least stable. And uh, does that mean it metabolizes more quickly into this other um, more potent uh, opioid mitragynine pseudo-indoxyl? Does it happen like very rapidly after it's, after it's consumed? Or or what does that all mean, actually? So the timing of its formation is, is, is such that, of course, if enough of it were formed you would see effects pretty soon after when i when i say pretty soon after uh, you know the the onset to drug effect is usually delayed uh the most when drugs are consumed orally mm-hmm. um just because of the process that is required to get distribution into to plasma uh, and blood circulation that that's an interesting chain of events so yeah we've talked about mitragynin conversion to 7-hydroxymitragynin i already mentioned that it does not appear that the amount of 7-hydroxymitragynin that's formed generally speaking is would be of of concern or, or at least enough to be behaviorally relevant i use terms like behaviorally relevant meaning is it going to do anything to the person who's taking it are they going to feel any different or the behavior is yeah. going to change mm-hmm. uh Probably not enough. Uh, there's not enough 7-hydroxymitragynin informed. Now, <laughs> pseudoendoxyl is interesting because you're right. That's the next step in the metabolic chain. You've got mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin in vivo, and then 7-hydroxymitragynin is converted into mitragynin pseudoendoxyl. Pseudo- and mitragynin pseudoendoxyl is even more potent <laughs> than 7-hydroxymitragynin. Uh, so it's like... <laughs> Mitragynin, you start with mitragynin, and then it, it tries to form into, you know, uh, better opioids, if you will. But the amount of, of, of those metabolites or those quote-unquote better opioids is, is relatively small. And while pseudoendoxyl, you, you know, in pharmacology, we talk about binding affinity or we talk about potency. We also talk about efficacy. I won't go into all those, those disciplinary definitions, but really the relative amount of drug you need to produce an effect. And, and for pseudoendoxyl, you're going to need the least amount as compared to um, 7-hydroxymitragynin and, and the parent mitragynin, meaning it's more potent. It's the most potent mm-hmm. of those three by far. Uh, so it, it increases its chances that it might be able to do something if, if enough of it were formed. But it turns out it, it, there's just like with 7-hydroxymitragynin, the amount of 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 um, pseudoendoxyl that's formed may not be behaviorally relevant. Now, let me let me insert one caveat. And much of what I'm describing is based upon what we know from acute single dose administration. You know, some of what I'm saying may not generalize or. or be hold up to be true in individuals or situations where the drug is repeated, uh, uh, dosed repeatedly. So if individuals are taking relatively large doses multiple times, either daily or, you know, across days, there could be a, a situation where you might get enough formation of these metabolites to where it's behaviorally relevant. So that I think is is a caveat that we have to consider as scientists and thinking about kratom and its its science is 
are, are is what we're finding when we do acute dosing um, is that does that generalize to situations that are more you know obviously more relevant I think in in the human situation where where people are taking uh, drugs like this uh, daily and mm -hmm. you know you can use coffee as an example. I've had several cups today. I'll probably have several more cups and I'll continue doing it every day. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, chron chronic, chronic uh, consumption of natural psychoactive natural products is nothing new for Kratom. That's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, does that mean just in general, does that mean if you get a powder that might already have seven hydroxymetragenine in it, then that's just generally going to be more potent than uh, traditional use with fresh leaf boiled in the tea. Yeah, I think, I think that's the concern. Mm -hmm. Going back to our, the sheriff that you mentioned earlier, that if, if there's enough of these metabolites, which we've been talking about their formation biologically, once mitragynin or kratom is consumed, if they're already there uh, in the product, yeah. Then, then I think there there is some issue with respect to safety and um, the overall experience and the effects it produces. The, the more of it that's there already, and how it gets there again is is a little bit open to debate. Um, I think the more uh, more effect and more more potent, more active, <laughs> the effect is going to be. The bigger the effect. It, You'll, you'll get when there's 7-hydroxymetragynin in, in the product already. And in that study with uh, the lyophilized tea versus the commercial extract shot, the extract shot clearly took far longer to metabolize uh, than the tea did. Is is that just simply due to the abundance of alkaloids in the shot? or No, I think, I think the, the, the key point there is all things being equal, and this goes back to our single versus multiple alkaloids, uh -huh. you know, whether you're studying the, the complex mixture or the, a single alkaloid, the putting the alkaloids together changes their individual pharmacokinetics. So it's not, it's not just a matter of there being more. It's, it's an, it, it, instead, what's happening is that their metabolism is delayed simply due to the presence of, of multiple alkaloids and that could be for a number of reasons they compete for the same enzymes that are there to break them down and obviously if you've got drug a being metabolized by a particular enzyme and drug b also being metabolized by that same enzyme you can imagine that there's going to be competition between those two drugs to be metabolized by that single enzyme and the more a and b you put a b together the longer they're going to stick around yeah, so that's one simple explanation for why the uh, metabolism is delayed and the presence of the compounds might be extended. Now, and that and that gets me into the idea of uh, the drug-drug interac interactions with uh, Kratom. Uh, there's been, you know, a lot of cases of uh, people that had a lot of fentanyl in their system, but they also had uh, Kratom alkaloids, uh, and, and, you know, they might have just overdosed from the fentanyl but we don't know if maybe the kratom uh what do we know so far about like the dangers of drug drug interactions uh with kratom yeah that's that's a it's obviously a hot topic and one that we have to be very careful in terms of getting an answer and and, mm -hmm. and i'd say that with reference specifically to how safe or dangerous is kratom alone <laughs> you know so you, yeah. you make a good point you, you've got these okay a, a toxic uh, or an adverse effect in somebody who tests positive for kratom but they also have fentanyl or, or you know any number of other drugs so you know it, it's it, drug drug interactions are of concern no matter the drug class this is true for you know all kinds of prescribed drugs and illicit drugs and natural products um you know, in the case of, and your your uh, my colleague participant, Dr. Sharma, mm -hmm. uh, may have talked about this. He did, uh, and, and he's you know he's really knowledgeable about this. Um, and we go back to the blood brain barrier, for example. Uh, I, I think that there are. It's known that that kratom or mitragynin, for example, or, or alkaloids in kratom can uh, modify how well. 
fentanyl gets into the brain and, and how effectively it's either effluxed out of the brain. So yeah, drug-drug interactions are, are hugely important. Uh, and, and again, Dr. Sharma talks about the pharmacokinetic interactions. But remember, I talked about pharmacodynamics. What do these drugs do to the biological systems when they're combined? And, and we, we don't know yet. Uh, I would predict, based upon what we know so far, that uh, up to a certain point, um, Kratom may be um, just fine to consume. I mean, I have to be very careful about what I'm going to say. I don't want it to be misconstrued. But mm-hmm. the, the, the dangers of combining Kratom with, let's just say, a number of substances may not be as much of a concern as, as, as we think. Um, and, and if there is a concern, it, it may be at very large doses of kratom mm-hmm. that greatly exceeds its basic pharmacology. And, and you know, you're going to have toxicity with any substance consumed in very large amounts and, and all also potential toxic interactions of substances that are combined. I mean, there are certain drugs that, that you're warned to be careful of uh, with uh, combining with grapefruit juice, for, for goodness sakes, because grapefruit juice is known to interact with a key enzyme that metabolizes a number of therapeutically uh, useful drugs. So, so I, I guess I'm, I'm giving you a very uh, uh, messy answer to a complex question. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, what we want to know as scientists is what is the toxicity and adverse effects of a, of a single substance? That's something that we ask for everything that we study. It's not unique to kratom or not unique to the individual alkaloids, but certainly it's an it's a issue that we need to resolve for the individual kratom alkaloids, and in particular mitragynin, since that's the one that's most abundant in most of the products that are being consumed. There's there's the other um, issue of respiratory depression. I I still see on the FDA site that they claim that kratom can cause respiratory depression, but we found that the way it acts on the mu opioid receptor where it doesn't recruit beta arrestin, uh, which the classical opioids do to cause respiratory depression. Um, has, has that actually, and in, and, um, in the one study, uh, uh, the adrenergic and opioid binding affinity study, um, it says, um, Adrenergic antagonists have been shown to be effective in reversing the rigidity in the diaphragm, chest wall, and upper airway um, produced by fentanyl, which suggests that mitragyny may be useful in curbing fentanyl-related overdoses. Now, I don't know. I'm sure there's probably not have been enough research to to conclusively say anything, but is is that another is that another reason why kratom has shown to to uh, not cause respiratory depression? Yeah, it it uh, again. It, so as everything as kratom tends to be, it's complicating, and that's because kratom yeah. um, is a complex plant, mm-hmm. and anytime you have complexity. <laughs> It's not. It's not easy. So, I mean, you made a couple of important points. Um, you know, drugs uh, bind to mu opioid receptors, and they can either signal through. They can signal through different pathways. The beta arrestin pathway is thought to lead to respiratory depression. And yes, it's uh, been suggested that certain kratom alkaloids um, don't signal through that problematic pathway. I, you know, that that is an area that um, is still hotly debated in opioid pharmacology. Okay. And that is the extent to which, um, you know, that beta arrestin versus the other pathways is really, really a critical determinant of the adverse effect profile. I mean, there, there's some good science out there and, and some of it supports that hypothesis, uh, but the, the data is not unanimous. Um, so, yeah, so you have mu opioid receptors, which is a particular kind of receptor where opioids are acting, and then you have this additionally complex, you know, different signaling cascades that can be initiated by that binding. You have other receptor types. You talked about the adrenergic receptors, and we think that mitragynin and perhaps some of the other kratom alkaloids have uh, reasonably high enough affinity or, or activity at those adrenergic receptors to where it could be biologically relevant. And, and as you pointed out, um, 
some of that adrenergic activity may cancel out some of the adverse effects associated with, with fentanyl use, for example, the, the uh, wooden chest syndrome, So, for example. Um, let's just talk simply about respiratory depression. Um, mm-hmm. th- this one has been, in, so th- now I think it's important to comment about preclinical work. Preclinical meaning work that you do not in humans um, and in using animal models. And when I say animal models, we're talking about certain things that we measure in rats, sometimes monkeys, um, and then sometimes other animal species, non-human species, that help us translate into humans. And what we're finding, interestingly, is that the degree of opioid activity that's produced by mitragynin, and that includes respiratory depression, varies pretty considerably depending upon the type of animal that you're studying. Even, even differences between rats and mice. I don't want to get like really geeky about, about the preclinical pharmacology, but um, you know, we've done a lot of work in rats, and the work in rats has suggested that eh, respiratory depression is probably not such a problem with, with mitragynin, for example. Um, it, it, may not, it may not be, if you have an adverse effect from a large dose of mitragynin, it may not be the uh, respiratory depression that's the issue. There may be some other things going on that we haven't been able to get our hands on. <clears throat> but then you take the, the, the studies into mice and you begin to see greater respiratory depression. So all that to say that um, the, the, in, if you look at all of the data, I think it's pretty safe to say that the degree of breathing suppression or decreased breathing suppression would lead to death. Let me be a little more technically accurate. The degree of, of breathing deep, you know, uh, depression uh, produced by mitragynin is not so great as, as uh, many of the classical opioids. And in fact, if mitragynin is an antagonist at opioid receptors, and some people think it may be under some conditions, it may be able to block the effects of of the traditional opioids. So at a minimum, I think the respiratory depressant uh, concerns are less with mitragynin, and I'm going a little bit out on a limb when I say that, and that would probably contradict what you just noted on the FDA website, but you know, I, I try to follow the data. Now I say all that and I remind you that I'm talking about preclinical work. Yeah. Ultimately, the human being is our is our gold standard. And um, obviously for ethical and, and humane reasons, it's not easy to do these kinds of studies in humans, but yeah. I think it's going to be important to find out uh, in in human beings whether the respiratory depressant activity is less of a concern with mitragynin as with other classical opioids. And I think that may turn out to be the case. And and I was going to ask that about um, studies on, like there was a recent one about, uh, it was a study on beagles, on dogs, and uh, and even doing stuff with uh, rhesus monkeys. Is, is the significance of that to uh, try to see like a variation in mammals between how you know, may, maybe rats metabolize something versus uh, monkeys. There are people who do comparative biology just for the sake of comparative biology. And I know you probably have a, a pretty general audience. And so, so one mm-hmm. of the things that I'll acknowledge up front is, you know, I have a very extensive background doing animal research. Um, you know, these, these can be difficult discussions with respect to animal welfare and, and animal uh, ethics. I mean, ultimately where the, where the, rubber hits the road for me is can we help the human condition um can can we can we um make the human experience a a better experience can we cure disease can we prevent drug overdoses can we prevent drug-induced death so you know that's another philosophical uh topic probably for another series of podcasts yeah um (laughs) But when we're developing drugs, you know, some of us make the hard choice that we're going to do these experiments in rats and monkeys and sometimes dogs because they're highly predictive of human activity. And that, to me, that's so let me answer your question very simply. I want to choose the model uh, or the, the species that's going to give me the best predictive outcome for what will happen in humans. That that for me is is the key. Um, and and. Y- 
ordinarily we think it, you know, the closer we get to a human in terms of file, uh, the phylogenetic scale and, and, and size, and, um, we think of non-human primates as being the most predictive of the human primates. And, mm-hmm. and that's true uh, a majority of the time, but there can be exceptions depending upon what you're studying, interestingly enough. Um, for some things, uh, oddly enough, uh, a rat or a mouse may be just as good as a monkey and, and maybe, <laughs> depending upon what you're studying, even, even have better predictive validity for uh, human uh, biology. Mm. So that so comparative biology is a whole area of study, and that is just genuine interest in understanding how, how organisms vi- differ from one another, just from a basic uh, research standpoint. But in terms of drug development and understanding the effects of drugs in humans, the key is to choose the species and the model that gives you the best translational outcome or the one that, that is going to be most predictive of what happens in a human being. With the opioid crisis, I guess there's a demand for safer pain meds. I mean, has that been, we talked about it a little before, but has that been where the recent interest and maybe grant funding has, has been coming from? Well, you know, for us, our mission, uh, specific goal, and by mission, I mean, we, you know, the National Institutes of Health is divided into several uh, in, you know, sub-institutes, and, mm-hmm. and our, we are funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Yeah. And so they, in addition to just having a fundamental bio- understanding of the biology responsible for, for drugs that humans take repeatedly for whatever reason, if they have, um, let's call it habit forming. Mm-hmm. That's not a very good term, but, you know, drugs of abuse – uh, or abuse drugs, yeah. uh, and and <laughs> we have to be careful. Uh, you know, that's a whole other sidebar of, you know, drugs right. don't have personalities, and they, yes. don't, they don't have a. You know, <laughs> drugs are drugs. Yeah. Uh, it's it's what the human does with the drug that's that's important. So we're always talking about human behavior. Here. Mm-hmm. So we're studying uh, the potential of these compounds in, in the grants that we have. The potential of these compounds to serve as medications for opioid use disorder and you know clearly there's evidence and oliver grunman another one of your your podcast guests has a lot of knowledge on trends and patterns of use Mm -hmm. in human beings and there's a clear signal that people who take prescription opioids or illicit opioids will take kratom instead take kratom consume kratom uh as a substitute um uh, to help them. And, and so there's good epidemiological evidence, I think, emerging, um, or, or at least, you know, human, human derived data that suggests that our goal of, of looking at kratom alkaloids as um, medications for opioid use disorder is, a, is supported. You mentioned pain. And of course, that's another huge interest of the NIH that's actually been sort of uh, uh, put into a different institute in terms of the mission. That's the National Institute on Neurological Disease and Stroke, or the NINDS. Uh, They're the ones who are focusing more on the pain side of, of things in terms of coming up with better pain medications. And certainly Kratom has huge potential uh, for for. Um, that kind of direction. And we know that also from the survey data from individuals who will say that, that Kratom has helped to alleviate certain kinds of pain. So while, while we're not, so I will tell you, we're studying that. And, and we all, you know, the NIH is not our only source of funds. We have uh, funds that we get from the University of Florida. We have contracts um, uh, and, and other grant sources that enable us to to study uh, pain, and, and we are doing that, but just not, certainly not as extensively as we are on the opioid use disorder indication. I I just have a question for you about um, just the thing that's happening with the uh, the WHO. Would their decision like severely? Uh, restrict research uh, if they would uh, decide to uh, recommend to the UN like an inter- international uh, restriction on Kratom? It could. 
Yeah. It's, you know, it, it depends upon the sourcing of the material. You know, much of the, the material that we study, we derive from the natural product itself. Hmm. So if, if we are unable to obtain uh, the kratom plants, the Mitragyna speciosa trees from other countries, then yes, that's going to severely restrict research. So the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you know, kratom grows in tropical climates. And uh, you know that we live in uh, a state that has a subtropical climate, Florida. I can tell you that these trees can be grown in the United States. Uh, I think it, it, would, it has to be looking at the geography and the climate of the different contiguous states. And then, oh, by the way, Hawaii is in a very tropical climate as well. Mm -hmm. um, there are opportunities, and I can tell you, <laughs> you wouldn't be surprised. There, there are people who uh, are taking advantage of uh, some of the favorable uh, growing areas in our country to produce uh, kratom trees and kratom products. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the who can do whatever it wants, um, but I can tell you that that it's possible to grow uh, kratom in the U.S., which would alleviate some of that international control issue. But you know, then ultimately that that takes us to the, the the next step down in terms of what's happening in our country with the Food and Drug Administration and the Drug Enforcement Agency with respect to, to whether or not they decide to control uh, kratom alkaloids. And, and by that, I mean schedule them into the Schedule yeah. uh, Substances Act, Controlled Substances Act. Yeah, and I guess we've seen with the cannabis, it's it's been... There's a lot of research that could have been done, I think, uh, oh, goodness. 80 you know, years I, ago. Yeah, it, hindsight's twenty twenty, and it, you look at my CV, and I've studied. Uh, in fact, I got my in, independent research, the, my strongest uh, boost in uh, studying can, cannabinoid mm -hmm. pharmacology. Um, oh, it's it's. I mean, I I can just be. I can take the gloves off and say that because of the the. On you know, they say follow the science. <laughs> that's a that's a catchword you hear. Uh, our government has not been following the science for decades <laughs> when it comes to cannabis. So, and that's unfortunate because um, I think there's a lot we could have learned uh, uh, during that time when because THC was a the most tightly controlled schedule schedule one. Uh, TH tetrahydrocannabinol being the the one of the critical components of cannabis because it was schedule one it was very difficult to study you have to have a specialized kind of license in order to do that and, and a lot of scientists are, are unwilling to take that chance because you're taking you're taking on risk when you get those licenses and the drug enforcement agency and you know, the people that I've worked with are very very good people uh, they, for the most part, want to help research, but they also have laws and rules that they have to follow. So it, mm -hmm. yeah, if, if we get to the point where we're um, outlawing, if you allow me to use that term, drugs that up till now have been widely accessible anywhere, um, you're, you're going to really put uh, a major obstacle in the way of progress in, in research. I think as early as four days from now, they'll uh, in Thailand they'll be able to uh, sell kratom products, and and I've seen in some of the studies that um, Dr. Singh has done over in Malaysia, like the the Thai the kratom that grows wild in Thailand has a completely different alkaloid profile than the than in in Malaysia, and I imagine the stuff grown in Florida has a completely different alkaloid profile. Is it tough to draw standard conclusions about how kratom works, given the various alkaloid profiles and in different regions? I mean, even the Philippines and and what's most commercially available, the stuff in Indonesia. Given just the various alkaloid profiles, it's hard to say conclusively that kratom does this or kratom does that, or does that affect the research at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The standardization is has uh, major implications for not only the research side, but the government agencies, the Food and Drug Administration, you can sometimes agree with what they do, sometimes not agree with what they do. Mm. They have been 
hugely helpful in terms of protecting human beings. I mean, it, it came about uh, over a hundred years ago to you know protect humans from taking things that were mislabeled or uh, poorly regulated. Yeah, uh, had things in them that were dangerous. So I mean, the FDA serves a very important purpose. And, and this is the type of thing that drives the FDA crazy in terms of being able to, you know, because fundamentally they want to facilitate access. I mean, there are some exceptions. We just <laughs> we just talked about one. But I think in general, yeah. uh, the government is trying to facilitate access to things that are going to make our lives better. Um, with reason, within reason, I, I, yeah. you know, there's some people. That's the idea, there, anyway. Be, <laughs> yeah, they might be listening to this and be like, "Oh my goodness, Doctor McMahon, you're so naive. There's so many politics in there. Let me give you so many examples of things that don't work and that are broken in the system." Yeah. So I get that. I get that. Um, going back to not only just kratom but natural products, this makes standardization uh, of the content makes it difficult not only to know with any precision scientifically what the effects are and what you might expect that then makes it difficult for uh, the FDA to then approve substances um, for medical, you know, medical claims or medical indications. The FDA does not like complexity. They like, uh, you know, individual compounds or, or the smallest number of ingredients in a particular drug product. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I couch my response in terms of, of the FDA because I think this ultimately, you, you raise an important point, not only with respect to, to comparing studies, if I'm studying a Thai plant or a Malaysian plant or a Florida plant, yeah, ultimately I got to know what the individual alkaloid um, content is. What's the amount of the various alkaloids? You know, in science, we like to change one thing at a time, right? Mm-hmm. That's the whole, that's, you know... When you're doing systematic study and you have five variables, let's say 10 variables, and you can think of that as different alkaloid contents, we want to hold nine of them constant and change one to see how that one, you know, changing that one impacts. And this gets back to the complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the complexity is, is really an issue with respect to being able to predict, you know, what one kratom plant is going to do versus another. And that's true for cannabis. Different yeah. kinds of cannabis, different concentrations of delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol or, or percentages, different percentages of cannabidiol. So the same, you know, there's a lot of overlap actually in thinking about. I think cannabis provides a useful comparator for thinking about kratom, not not so much because of the political part of it, but just in terms of thinking about the individual components and yeah. trying to understand what the individual components do. And cannabis is not cannabis is not cannabis. There is cannabis, the hemp, right, is, is supposed to not have the good stuff that people like when, you know, the, the reason why most people smoke it is because <laughs> they want the one thing that's missing in the, in the, uh, uh, in the industrialized stuff. hemp yeah. <laughs> right, product. So, yes, the answer to your question is it, it becomes difficult when the products vary by region. I've read about how like childhood trauma uh, just fundamentally changes brain chemistry that makes some people more susceptible to addiction. When is there research you do that takes into account if uh, somebody's more prone to addiction versus uh, versus somebody who isn't when when you study some of these substances? That is not a variable <clears throat> or a general area that we actively study. Okay. To any uh, degree, you, you you raise an important point. It, I'll rephrase it. The you're, you're talking about environmental influences, environmental yeah. factors. What does experience do to the nervous system uh, that may or may not predispose individuals to certain drug effects? It's not only true for abused drugs, but it's also true for you know the the medically useful drugs, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medications, and 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 other other drugs that that we might that act in the central nervous system. So trauma is one. There are others. There's, you know, biological sex, male versus female. There's the hormonal environment. There is um, the nutrition of the, of the animal, whether they have a a high fat or a high carb diet or or they're obese or they're lean. So there, there are a lot of environmental uh, influences on, on the central nervous system. That's for sure. And in turn, 
those changes in the nervous system produced by the particular environment can then change drug outcomes or the effects of drugs. So you ask an excellent uh, question. And going back to our preclinical models, we do the best we can to try to model the human condition. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we're more successful than not, depending upon what we're studying. Uh, But generally speaking, the more complex the, the behavior, psychiatric condition, drug abuse, um, uh, and, and say trauma. I mean, you could, you could think about how to model trauma in a non-human experimental, you know, animal. And, and there are ways to do that, but you can imagine that that introduces another layer of complexity in terms of uh, developing our models. Mm-hmm. It's not only that the drugs are, are, are complex and challenging, but <laughs> increasingly complex human behaviors and human conditions are even introduce even more difficulty with respect to doing our preclinical work. Yeah, especially given the last the past year, that's kind of a random thing that went in there uh, in terms of stress levels on the brain. Um, but well, uh, that, that, you had stress levels on the brain, and then just more yeah. more basic things like you know what does the we you know COVID is producing these these what do they call the long haul COVID or whatever? And maybe some neurological thing. I mean, there's, yeah. So (laughs) I, I get your point. Your point is we're all stressed out because of the COVID stuff, but I think COVID too, (laughs) add that to the milieu. So I think uh, scientists will, will be kept busy for, for as long as humans are in existence. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Uh, Hopefully longer than sooner. Um, If you can talk about it, how close are, researchers to studying human clinical trials or is there any upcoming studies that you can talk about that we should look out for well you know i can talk about it i mean i can Mm -hmm. just sort of generally speak to the issue i mean there are some proprietary uh areas where i'm working um but i I can i can speak generally Mm -hmm. there are so there is at least one or two groups that are funded to study Kratom products in clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had a long discussion and I, I'm blanking on the, um, the universities that are, are doing those studies. Uh, but there's at least one or two groups. And I know Johns Hopkins, you know, they've been very active in the um, therapeutic use of psychedelics and they've all john hopkins has a great group and they've always been on the forefront of of human drug abuse related work mm-hmm. and and therapeutics and we talk about drug abuse let's let me let me stop there and just say that you know drugs of abuse are a thing <laughs> we get into them and they're and they're hotly debated and contested because those drugs also have some very significant therapeutic yeah. uses in humans if they're used under the right conditions right mm-hmm. that's what makes them a hot hot topic Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they work and they help <laughs> if used in yeah. moderation or if used, you know, Absolutely. Uh, uh, the way they're supposed to. But then, of course, the issue then becomes if, if they're used um, beyond what is indicated or what is prescribed, then it can become problematic. The group at Hopkins, I think, is going to be coming up with, with some, some uh, human studies of, of crowd and products. Now, we are also – so in terms of the standardized – clinical phase one, phase two studies to look at medical indications of, and, and potential for the uh, either some combination of the alkaloids or individual. Like I said, the FDA, they like simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you go simple, it takes away some of the, the value of the, the complex natural product, but yeah, but you got to start somewhere. And so there's great interest and we're currently working with the government and as well as uh, who are contracting out with different uh, organizations to to help create a clinical formulation of mitragynin that will then be uh, used if approval can be gained by the FDA for an investigational new drug, an IND, yeah, to do phase one trial safety testing, and then the phase two application. And, and as I've mentioned we're most interested in its ability to um, facilitate um, recovery in an opioid using subjects. Yeah. Um, how far away are we from those? Oh, 
it's interesting. We just had a meeting a couple hours ago with our group, and you know, I'd say we're still a few years off because it's a it's a hmm. long, um, systematic, sometimes tedious, frustrating, but. As you can imagine, when we're talking about human safety, these things take time. So yeah. um, if, if everything goes according to plan, I would think that these um, th- this formulation of mitragynin will be available uh, for its first clinical studies within two years, maybe. Uh, and then it may be very soon after that where it becomes available to other research groups so that they can conduct their own clinical studies. So we're getting close, but but we're probably pretty far off. And this is true for any natural product. When, again, when you're talking about natural product standardization becomes an issue and it may be some time off before we get definitive answers about what the complex natural products benefits versus its uh, adverse effects might be. Yeah, two years is quick for uh, in science years, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, we've, you know, we've been working on it now for two, three years. So we are... Yeah. We are soldiering on um, and, and doing our part. You know, we just want the answer. I, I try to be as unbiased as I can be. Um, and you get as straight answers from me as you'll get from anybody. And, and I, I think we're close to getting to the point where we can get some good clinical data. Great. That's that's awesome. And and I'll be there to uh, try to summarize it on my blog and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, talk to talk to more folks from my favorite college of pharmacy. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a shout out to some of the people who've not yet been on and, and hopefully they will. Yeah. Will yeah. Anybody, too. anybody that wants to talk about Kratom science is welcome. And thank you. And just thank everybody. And thank you for your patience and talking to me and trying to simplify these complex issues as I, as my untrained in science brain tries to learn about them. <laughs> that's, well, that's our mission as scientists and as, as uh, uh, employees of the state of Florida and the government. Is we our, our goal is to educate people, so happy to do it. It was a privilege. Thank you so much, Dr. McMahon, University of Florida College of Pharmacy. I have a, uh, links to all the research that we talked about in the description. Please like, subscribe, rate, review, follow. Check us out on Twitter, at Kratom Science. Check us out on Facebook. The music is Risey. The song is called Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.